0: Welcome to Our Social Impact, brought to you by the Prison Scholar Fund. The Prison Scholar Fund's mission is to provide education and employment assistance to help currently and formerly incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of reincarceration. The PSF also advocates for reform in correctional education to increase opportunity for all. As a nonprofit, we rely on investments, volunteers, and are always looking for board members to champion our mission. Please connect with us through our website at prisonscholars.org, where you can find volunteer opportunities, make a contribution, and learn about becoming a board member. You can also email us at info at prisonscholars.org and find us through most social media platforms at Prison Scholars. Become a patron by supporting us directly at Patreon with at Prison Scholars. We appreciate your review of this podcast through whatever platform you listen through. Without further ado, here's Dirk Van Belsen founder and CEO of the Prison Scholar Fund.
1: So welcome to our social impact. Today we have Jason Spires. I just bumped into him after doing a, a YouTube podcast. So welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you, I'm glad to be on. So I hear you're doing amazing things. And since I know nothing about you, I get to learn about you same time everybody else does. Sounds great. But I do know that you're Stanford. I know you're formerly incarcerated. And I also know you're doing some pretty amazing
2: work. Okay. So I'll let you kind of jump in, maybe some background, and. Okay. So, uh, to sum up my life into an encapsulated paragraph for people to know who I am, uh, I grew up with drug addicted parents, was poor, not making excuses, just setting the scene, and decided to start selling cannabis. Uh, next thing I knew, I started making good amount of money on it, and I got arrested and I was given a 30-year sentence in the state of Illinois. While in prison, I decided that I had a distorted notion of what success was, and I changed the way that I looked at a lot of things. And I started studying physics, calculus, chemistry, and all this on my own, doing the best I can to dismantle the material. And then, towards the end of my incarceration, I got to a work release program, which is where I could go out in society and work while I was still incarcerated. And I was able to enroll in community college classes, and I held a 4.0 GPA while working 60 hours a week. At, and I was able to build and establish two businesses and make them profitable. And during that time, I became the first ever incarcerated student admitted into Phi Theta Kappa. I put in congratulations. Thank you very much. I put in to apply to you name it everywhere, you know, big popular university, and I got into Stanford and now The here Stanford, I am, the Stanford <laughs> University. Nice, congratulations. I'm thankful every day to be here. There's some days where I'm riding my bicycle ac- across the quad. I look out at the Stanford Oval and I'm just like, "Wow, this is my life." The Rodin statue. So, in a stat- statues of so just different than when road. I was looking at the sun through a, through a, a window with a screen on it, with bars. You know. So the knowledge you were dismantling inside a prison. What was that like? And did you get any credit for that? Uh, No, I didn't get any credit for that. What I did is, in Illinois, their system is starting to change, and I applaud them for their changes. But when I was in there, when you had a longer amount of time, it was next to impossible to get into classes. And so when I had my realization that I wanted to change my life, I decided that nothing was going to stop me, and I enrolled in Jason Spires University, which I like to say is me and my library card hard at work. And so they didn't really have any textbooks there that could really help me, So I wrote various colleges and asked them if they could just send me a used textbook. Been been there and done
1: that. It always works.
2: Originally, I got my hands on a a molecular chemistry book from 1996. It was 1,200 pages with an 1,180-page workbook. I worked through that from page one from about the author to the very end. Every single page, every single problem, every single day. It took me six to seven hours for six and a half months. And I took copious notes, and I like to say that uh, selling cannabis was not the last crime I committed. Because when I got done with that textbook, my notes stood higher than the textbook. So <laughs> I think I committed copyright infringement without even trying. Just straight to... writing it down.
1: Yeah. So did the guards give you any shade because you're a cannabis dealer? I, I,
2: mm-hmm. Were you dealing it, or? Oh yeah, it? I was. A, I was a full-fledged. You know cannabis dealer I was bringing cannabis from California out to Illinois and I was doing it for criminal ambition to make money off of doing an illegal act so I so that now, that
1: now that that's your history and now you're studying molecular chemistry do the guards think that you're trying to learn how to
2: cook drugs oh or... yes all the time like I don't know if they actually thought that but that was the joke and I remember, yeah. I remember one time well I started with molecular chemistry and then after chemistry I did physics. And then after fit seven months of physics, I went on to organic chemistry. Then after organic chemistry, I did calculus. And during calculus, I realized I should have done f- calculus before physics. <laughs> so then I redid the physics book, and it made so much more sense. All the derivatives? But Yeah. And I remember one time I was looking at water flowing through a pipe, and it would have how much water pressure is going through this pipe and how high will this water climb through this tube. And I'm working it out. And the CEO just came up to me and looked at it and kept walking. But that wasn't the weirdest moment. The weirdest moment was I was trying to figure out chiral molecules and diastomers in organic chemistry. And it's hard to visualize it on paper. So I got a racquetball or a handball. And I poked four tetrahedral holes on it and treated it like it's a carbon. I'm not trying to sound like too overly here. But like yeah. I had a ball. I poked holes in it. And these were substituent groups to represent a chemical molecule. All this
1: chemistry people know what you're talking about. Yeah,
2: and I'm trying to figure out like how it looks. And I'm, and I'm moving it around, and I'm like, ah! Oh, because the question is, is this? Like when you hold your hand up and you look at the back side of your hand, your thumb's going a certain direction. But if you look at the other side of your hand, your thumb's going the other direction, but you know it's still the same hand. So I was trying to figure out, Is this the same molecule and I'm just looking at it from the other direction? Or is this molecule your right hand instead of your left hand? Is it different? Gotcha. It's like, I'm trying to figure this out and I'm losing my mind. And a cop just, not a cop, a a correctional officer came up to me and he was just like, what the hell are you doing? Mr. Spires. Yeah. (laughs) Mr. K99397, what are you doing? (laughs) And I look at this ball and I had this moment where like, oh shit. If I just, if I try to tell him what I just told you, like, he's going to think I'm straight nuts. He's going to think you're high on it. Yeah. So I'm just like, I'm just trying to get a better life for myself. (laughs) And he's like. I can support that and kept going. <laughs> kept and I that. was like, because it was a true statement. But yeah. like, if I tried to actually explain what I was doing. Skip the details. Yeah, it, it, it <laughs> wouldn't have worked well.
1: Just, hey man, so very cool. Sounds like you've always been a lifelong learner.
2: Well, when I was younger, I think what it is is I, was, I wasn't in the best environment to encourage learning. But I was always smart. Like I remember math came pretty easy to me. But I've found in life that when you're lacking a lot of the fundamentals... Like, when you know that the third is the day that the food stamps show up, so don't go to school because mom's going to go to the grocery store and you can hide some of the food afterwards, you're not focused too hard on your homework. Yeah. You know, So I always had, like, a curiosity and a natural gut that I wanted to learn stuff, but I think that the fundamentals are so lacking in my life that I never have to focus on it. Gotcha. And that's one thing that I hate to say, but... Prison is a very negative experience, and I don't wish it on anybody. But there was actually years of my life in prison which were more enjoyable to me than my childhood, and I'm not blaming my parents for it. They had their problems, you know, but they did the best that they could. But prison allowed me to know the food sucked, but I knew the food would be there. Yeah. Uh, the the accommodations sucked. But I knew the accommodations would be there. So you had
1: consistency that
2: you didn't have before. Yeah, it gave us stability. Maybe yeah. not a... Look, if you know everything's always going to suck, your life is still stable.
1: Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> It'll be the same tomorrow as it is today. Exactly. So it sounds like, you know, you didn't have a great reference group.
2: They didn't encourage you to go to college, things like that. That wasn't really on your radar. Uh, no, college wasn't really on my radar. And I do remember that when I graduated high school... I did want to go to school because Caterpillar had an apprenticeship program to be a maintenance man, but it was through a community college, and I didn't even realize it was, like, college. You know what I mean? Like, I thought it was just, I'm doing, like, a job training program, and it happens to be at the college. Yeah. And I got there, and I found out that it's actually college courses. But other than that, yeah, I would have never stepped in a college classroom so being a cannabis
1: dealer, tell me about that. How much how much weight were you moving? And did you really do actual 30 years on this thing? Uh,
2: here's how it worked. Okay. I've written a book. It should be published in like the next 18 months or so. So my 17th birthday rolls oh, around. Do we find it on Amazon? Plug the title if you want. Uh, no, I haven't put it on Amazon. You know, if I don't find a publisher or an agent soon, uh, I probably will go that route because... It's so wrong of me to brag about it myself, but, like, I wrote a legit book. Like, it it doesn't sound like something that some guy in prison just scribbled down on a notepad. Yeah. It has a beginning. It has a middle. It has an end. It has a plot. And I lived through it all. So here's how it started. My 17th birthday, I was a boy. Obviously, I had the ambitions of many 17-year-old boys. So I wanted to throw a party, you know, get a girl I like to come over. And I'd never smoked pot. To this day, I haven't took a drag of a cigarette. So I decided I was going to throw a party, and I was going to try and get a half ounce of pot to have at the party, kind of like a party favor. And my buddy Cody said that he'd get a half ounce for $35. So after school, uh, I got up with Cody. We were going to go get this half ounce. So I asked my mom, could I borrow her car? And Because her car was better than mine. And she said, why? And I told her. And as I'm walking out the door, she's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Get me some. Here's 10 bucks. <laughs> get me some too. I'm out. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what she said. <laughs> so she gives me the 10 bucks. I go on this wild goose chase. I end up with a little less than a half ounce, and I ended up paying 40 bucks. So I get back. I give mom her little break off. And the next day, I see a girl. I'm like, hey, you want to, you know you want to smoke some pot? And I give her a little bit. She smokes it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm throwing a party tonight. You should come to it. And her friend walks up, and he's like, hey, man, will you sell me some of this? And I'm like, no, man, it's for the party. He's like, come on, man, will you sell me some? I'm like, no, man, it's for the party. He walks off. As soon as he walks off, she's like, hey, would you sell me some of it? I'm not justifying anything, but she was able to talk me into something. She was cuter. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I wanted (laughs) to kiss her a lot more than him. Yeah, she's
1: bashed her eyes, and she's got
2: it. So I sold her a little bit. Then one of my buddies who was involved in helping us get it, he asked me to sell him some. He's like, Man, I hope you get it. So I sold him some. Long story short, by the end of the day, I had a little bit left over for the party. The party went well, and I pulled the money out and I started counting up, and I had 35 bucks. I'm like, Well, cool. I paid 40, so this only cost me five bucks. And then I remembered, Wait a minute. Mom gave me $10 the night before. So I'd actually made five dollars. Literally telling people, no, no, no! I do not want to sell you this. And you still made. And five And I bucks. still made five bucks. You know, and
1: so you can do the math pretty fast.
2: Yeah, and and I like to joke that that makes my mom be my number one first customer. <laughs> she doesn't like that fact, but you know I like to tease her with it. Uh, but I I realized real quick that I liked the idea of like the social interactions of it, like throwing the party. I liked the idea of people coming for me to get it. So I told myself this diluted notion of, okay, everybody says it. I'm just going to hook my friends up. You know what I mean? I'm just going to hook my friends up. So then I'm working at Jack in a Box, and someone comes through. And being kids, we thought it was so cool to try and sell it out the drive-thru and this and that. And one day, one of my buddies comes through the drive-thru, gets it, and he has someone else in the car with him that I do not know. He hands it to him. The guy that I do not know says, thanks, man, and pulls off. When I go on my break, because I had this weird moment, I'm like, I'm which, a drug dealer. What just happened? Yeah, like, yeah. I just sold drugs. Some, I just, and I had this weird thought now, of, am now I? Now it's not
1: your friends anymore. Yeah,
2: like, I'm like, am I okay with this? And I literally went through my head of, like, seriously, am I okay with this? And at that point, a police officer that I knew pulled up right in front of me, got out of his car, walked up, and see? Hey, Jason. Looked up, and he's like, everything all right, bud? you got any weed on you? <laughs> and I'm like, no, nah, man. Cause I actually had I done deals. With, yeah. I had done deals with him before and he'd helped me get weed for, I'm like, no. Nah, and that's, he's like, all right. And he walks into the, so you saw the, cops Yeah, he too. walks in. Well, and they were helping me get it. I was buying cannabis off of police officers. Okay. So like that's, so that was my thought is, you know, I'm even the police are in on this. I'm not hurting anybody. And I'm, I got, I already bought my offspring tickets next week. So yeah. like, I'm, I'm paying for gas. I'm paying for concerts. I'm not hurting anybody, so I was cool with it. Next and thing I know, it's just weed. Right, just a little bit of pot. It's just weed. Yeah. Next thing I know, I come out to Illinois. I realize the price difference out here. You know, I brought some from California out to Illinois, and then the money just bombarded. Instead of five bucks, now it's five hundred. Now it's five thousand. You know, like it's. I I was literally at one point. I was moving. I'd say at least fifty to hundred pounds a month. At least, nice. You know, and I wasn't making like gobs of money per pound, but like I try to tell people, the cannabis market is about turnover; it's not about margins. Yeah. So, but a, a long story goes into that. I won't break it down here. I've broke it down in places, but it's in my book. Something happened that made me realize that I had a mistaken notion when I was sitting in the parking lot, Jack in a box, that I was hurting people. And I tell people all the time is, I am all for cannabis legalization, but not. For what you think. I don't smoke pot. I don't condone it. I don't think you should smoke pot. I don't care if you do, but I don't... But you're not going to recommend it. Yeah, but I'm anti-prohibition. Because I've realized that prohibition creates a black market that cultivates other crimes, and it creates an indirect ripple effect that you can never control. So, I had a mistaken notion because sitting in that parking lot jack in a box I only seen it from my perspective. When I was in Illinois... I got robbed for about 90 pounds of weed, got my head split open. You know, I brought dangerous people into into my neighborhood so they could rob me, and I seen the bigger ripple effects. But I, realized that, but I realized that it wasn't the cannabis doing it. It was the black market surrounding it. So if you get rid of the prohibition, all the negative effects of it go away. As to use having negative effects, that's a separate argument. Now you're arguing whether it should be used or not. I'm discussing whether it should be prohibited or not right and there's all sorts of drugs like alcohol is legal mm-hmm. and it has you know, and na- we can discuss the use of alcohol but one of the allegories i like to make with that is i have never in all of my days seen anheuser-busch drive by the Michelob factory and shoot off a rocket at him you know what i mean yeah like, <laughs> when you get rid of prohibition you don't have these illegal markets and it's much better yeah i've heard that argument before And this is coming from a convicted drug trafficker, so I'm telling you, (laughs) get rid of the prohibition and a lot of your problems will calm down. Interesting. A lot of people ask me, what was the moment in your life that made you realize you had a distorted notion of what success meant and made you change it? And I was sitting in my cell and I was watching a show called MTV Cribs. You've probably all seen it. You know, I think it was Master P. He had like a hundred pairs of shoes and eight cars. And I realized something that like, you can only drive one car at a time, you know what I mean. And I looked at my TV, which was I, I paid for this 13 inch TV. It was like 250 dollars back in 2004. It's the most, as you probably know, it's the most prized possession I yep. make. Can Did you have a green have. one or a clear one? Not a clear one. <laughs> and it was the big bubble. Yeah, you know? the big bubble. Yep. And and I and I asked myself if I had two of these side by side. Would it make me any happier? And the answer was no. Two 13-inch bubble TVs would not make me any happier. And so then I went out to my window, and then I looked out the window, and I had the screen, and I had that cheesy moment where, you know how, like, a guy and a girl are separated, and they look up at the moon, but they're like, oh, we're all both looking to the same moon. It's like I looked up at that moon, and I was like, you know what? That's the same moon I'd be looking at. If I wasn't in this prison cell, and then that's when it dawned on me that like two TVs doesn't make me happy. I gotta find things that make me happy and not just have it be based upon material objects. And then I realized, I'm looking at the same moon, which that means everybody else looking at. Which means it's still my life to live. They didn't take my life. They just forced me to live it in their location. And then that's when I realized nobody's stopping me from going to the library and getting a book nobody's stopping me from learning how to speak spanish nobody's stopping me from acquiring knowledge and acquiring pursuit besides myself and that moment was just like so awakening to me and so i started gathering knowledge and then the second moment that just changed everything was when we went to the chow chow hall we stand in the lines if you've ever been in the military or in prison you know what it's like to stand in the line for the chow hall there is more semblances to military people and ex-prisoners than you would imagine. but Yeah, pr- uh, prison is just like the military, but you don't get guns. Yeah, and, and, and when you're done with your time, you're not as respected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, But one of the things I like to say is we stood underneath this tree for shade and waiting to go in. And I had a dental pass one day, so I, would, I didn't get to go to the regular chow line, and that tree fell. And I don't mean that tree felt like... <laughs> it went... Bam! Just fell. Really? Yeah. So, and it fell during the time that I could have been going to chow. Now, I'm not saying I would have been standing underneath it. I'm not saying it would have died. I'm saying it prompted the thought in my head that what if that happened to me and I died? I said, "What is the sum total existence of my life?" You're facing mortality like that. Yeah. The sum total existence of my life was I was good, quote unquote, because I got caught went to prison moving a plant from this state to that state. I'm like, what if your life's work was, hey, I took this onion from Missouri to New York. Like, it's like, that's not a huge thing. (laughs) This arbitrary thing. And that's when I wanted more for myself. And that's when I really started hitting the sciences and trying to figure out how to go about life in a different way.
1: So you're studying hard in prison. Did you ever kind of picture, I can't wait till I get out
2: and actually go to college? I was watching C-SPAN. Probably not the typical prisoner, but I like to watch C-SPAN, and they were having a college admissions board, and there was someone up there from Harvard, I think Stanford was there. I believe it was Harvard, Stanford, and Columbia, and they asked, "What do you look for?" When someone applies, what do you look for? And I think it was the Stanford girl. I can't remember. I don't want to, you know, give a lie, but like I think it was Stanford, and she said, "You know, finding the perfect candidate is kind of like love." I can tell you the generics of it, but I can't tell you what's going to make me fall in love. The feeling. But you know it when you see it, right? And she said, you just read the application, you read the essays, and you know it when you read it. Interesting. She said, I can tell you what a good essay should look like. I can't tell you the good essay is going to work.
1: Yeah, you can, you can map out GMAT score, yeah. GPA, so, all, well, all the base So They baseline. talked about
2: all that, and she said, but you know what I find impressive? She said, let's say I have two kids. One gets a 1,600 on the SATs one gets a 1300 on the SATs the one that got a 1600 went to a college prep school got dang near a 4.0 if not a 4.0 GPA his mom's a doctor his dad's a lawyer he was involved in his community he went overseas for a summer to help with habitats for humanity but then the girl who got the 1300 on the SATs is living in Georgia her mom never even graduated high school her dad's a welder she, uh, she got like a four, you know, in high school, or a seven. Not, you know, not perfect, but good grades, but she got a 1,300 on the SATs, and she wasn't involved in after-school prep courses. She said, I would take that girl every single time. And they're like, why? And they're like, because that girl took what she was given and made the most out of it. I'm not belittling what the boy did, but imagine if you give that girl the same resources and the same environment that he had. She could have had every bit the same result. Yeah, well, while he's being tutored, she's probably working a a time job. So it's basically not just, what have you done? It's, what have you done with what have you been given? And then that's when I was, I was like, wow. And I stopped, and I looked around my prison cell. And I said, what do I got? And I had a pencil... And I had a notepad at one of the textbooks I'd been reading. And at that point, man, I decided, I got it. This is it. Because who can say they have as little as a prisoner? You know what I mean? And I was like, I just got to do the best I can with what I got. I don't got to keep up with everybody else. And then... That's when I started writing newspapers and getting published with op eds on how we should reform certain prison policies. You I, still have a voice. Yeah, I've been published in over 100 different newspapers. No kidding. Yeah, I don't know if it was 100 different newspapers, but I've been published over 100 times in newspapers. You know, op-eds and, stuff, yeah. and I had feature articles and magazines, and I had reporters come down to the prison and interview me after a really? while. What, what's, well, your, because, what's your best magazine? Uh, I was in the Illinois, Illinois Times. I had the whole feature article, the cover story, and everything. We'll, have pre- to we can, we'll Google it. What's it called? Uh, Just Google Jason Spires, Illinois Times, and okay. you'll find S-P-Y-R-E-S. it.
1: S-P-Y-R-E-S.
2: Yeah, S-P-Y-R-E-S. Yeah, we'll I, Google d- it. Yeah, and you'll find it. And if you just Google Jason Spires, Stanford, there's a Stanford review article on me. That was pretty nice.
1: Nice. So,
2: but the point is, is I started writing, and then I made, you know what? I see all these ways to fix the prison system, and we should do it. And I said, but the only way I'm going to have credibility is if I don't argue for myself. I said, if I argue for myself, it makes it look like I'm just doing everything I can to get outside of prison. And I said, I want out, but it's more like I want to see the system get fixed as well. And if they fix the system, that will benefit me. Yeah, you can ride that wave. And so I wrote every single elected Illinois House representative, every single Illinois elected senator, I wrote the governor's office multiple times. And uh, right now, uh, Michael who who is the senator in Champaign, who's now went on to statewide elected office, I believe he's the treasurer, he wrote me back multiple times and said he was proud of my ideas and he thought they were actually feasible. So he had and, a pen pal, pretty pretty important one. Well, I'm going to say this, is that they've reformed their system now, and I'm not saying that I did it, but I can say all the changes they're making are directly in line with the changes I was published in the paper saying this is exactly what we need to do years before. So it could be a coincidence,
1: or it could have it's been just a coincidence.
2: Thinking. I guarantee you it's just a coincidence. Yeah, you're <laughs> humble.
1: That's amazing.
2: One of the things I like about it now is now Shane Crutchfield, who's currently sitting in prison with a 40-year sentence for three ounces of cocaine, he's able to get good time for going back to school to get his GED. He's able to get good time for participating in programs that have proven to lower recidivism rates. And honestly, when you're serving a sentence, if you serve 20 years or you serve 19 years, but instead instead of that extra year you did all these things that are going to equip you to not come back and not recommit that crime, I'm all for it. That's a pretty good investment. Well, and one of the things I say is forget about the prisoner. There's some people who say, well, "Oh, you just want to hug a thug and help a guy get out." I'm like, "You're, you're misunderstanding the frame of reference." They're like, what do you mean? I said, "I don't care if you're a child molester. I don't condone what you did, but if you're going to serve fifteen years, and they come up with some kind of program that makes it fifty percent less likely that you're going to reoffend, and you, and in order to motivate you to do the program, I got to give you six months off of your sentence." I would rather you do 14 years, 6 months and do that program and get out than 15 years and not do it because you're looking at the inmate like hug a thug. I'm looking at the victim that won't be created. Nice. I want to know that when he gets out, there's a 50% less chance that another person's life is going to be destroyed by this person. I'm not condoning what he did. I acknowledge him to still be a human. I acknowledge him to be given every chance when he gets out to still go on and have a successful life. You know, he has to live with the damage that he's created. His victim has to live with the damage that they were unfairly given. But that extra six months that he didn't do, if it made it 50% less likely he's going to impact someone's life again like that, I'll take that every single time.
1: Yeah, 14 years, six months to 15 years. Yeah,
2: and I tell people this all the time. If I tell you, man, you're going to prison for 15 years, think about that. And now I come to you and go, oh, I was just kidding. It's only 14 years, six months. <laughs> like, do, do, does that time difference really make a difference to you? That yeah, six no months really, yeah. motivates him to do a program that could make a huge difference in not creating a future
1: victim, though. And very few people actually analyze the, the consequences of the behavior as, as a discouragement.
2: Well, here's what I try to tell people. Like, they used to not give you good time for a GED if you were a class X offender in Illinois. It's another long story, but I was technically a class X offense. And what it is, is it's years of legislators not understanding what they're doing and not interpreting how administrative law actually gets applied. And it deemed me, a nonviolent cannabis offender, legally a heinous offender. So somehow I sold cannabis without a gun and without a shred of violence. But inside of Illinois prison system, I was deemed legally more heinous than a second-degree murderer. And this rendered me ineligible to receive good time for GED drug rehabilitation anger management classes because they rendered that i'm just so heinous i'm un- i'm legally unrehabilitatable so how did cannabis become such the this terrible this terrible thing what's the, what's the, do you, what you happened, know the history on the yes i do what what happened is that in the in the 1980s reagan started his war on drugs and the whole nancy reagan just say no and then in the 90s, we had this whole crusade to try and get these longer prison sentences. We had Bill Clinton passing the Brady Bill, which led to the militarization of the police and things like that. So what happened was, is in Illinois, and you have to go back to 1978 to give you some foreground. They had a constitutional convention, and in their constitution, their state constitution, they put that we're going to have a restorative justice system, which is where... We sentence fen- offenders in the guise of restoring them back to useful citizenship. So the goal of the prison system was to take a person and return them back to being a useful citizen. But to reach that, they had to come up with a compromise with a lot of the hardliners. The hardliners said, no, if you, molested, if you disembodied a human body and you, know, you killed three people you know, or you did all this stuff, you are an absolute horrible person. You've lost your right at redemption. So they came up with this compromise called the Class X sentence. And they said what it is is you're X'd out of society. You're no longer matter. So that's the Class X you were talking about. So then what happened was is they create this Class X category, but everybody else, redemption is for them. So they came up with these programs. When you get there, if you do this program that helps you get restored to useful citizenship, you can earn some good time off your sentence. If you do this other program, but if you got a Class X... You're legally unrehabilitatable. You've done something so horrible that there's no hope of rehabilitation. But you him. don't
1: have life sentence. So, yeah, but you, no. don't
2: get, but you don't get the good time. Yeah. So then the 90s comes along, tough on drugs, the Brady Bill, and legislators upgraded the class of cannabis offenses from whatever it was to a class X, uh. not realizing that that designation made them legally unrehabilitatable. And what that led to is someone like me who sold cannabis, now ending up in prison, legally more heinous than a second-degree murder, and unable to earn good conduct credits for rehabilitative programs. And see, when I talk with legislators about this kind of stuff, what scares me is so many people are, tough on crime, do the time, you know, do the crime, do the time, and I'm like, I'm with you. If somebody does something wrong, I'm with you on a consequence, but you need to look at how we're meeting out these consequences and ask you if it doesn't make sense. Is jaywalking, right, a less offense than stealing? I'd say it is. But what if jaywalking carried a longer sentence or deemed you legally heinous, and stealing didn't? Hopefully, even the hardliners—they're like, "Don't do the crime if you can't do the time"—will agree. Okay, maybe we need to reform. That. Maybe, these are maybe, whack maybe we a need bit. to maybe jaywalking shouldn't carry two months in prison yeah just saying that yeah yeah i think we can drop that down
1: yeah you know so yeah that's really interesting like and even in my case you know i got like you know 15 years for commercial burglaries which is like breaking into warehouses and i see uh second degree murderers doing like nine to eleven years it's like i didn't leave a body in my wake and i got more time but you know that's just you know the way that laws are structured.
2: Yeah, I, one of the things I'd like to say is when you look at how sentences are constructed, I do have sympathy for those who are trying to construe how sentences are going to be applied because I knew one guy, he was a real good guy, I'll leave his name out of it, but he was driving, he was drunk, and he got in a car accident. The car hit him. When the car hit him, it killed his passenger, and it killed the two people in the other car, and he was drunk driving, so three people died, and he served less time than me. Now, I'm not saying that he should have served more time to me or less time to me or this and that. I'm saying, but it's real hard to gauge. like, How much time in prison do you give that guy because he was driving drunk because somebody else hit him and casualties came about it? Yeah, you shouldn't drink and drive, but it's real hard to gauge how you can't hand out sentences in these block codes. Yeah. Like each sentence has its own unique characteristic.
1: And I think that's when the, the the sentencing reform act kicked in because when judges had the discretion there's uneven sentences across the board and they're like we need to fix this and have mandatory minimums and all that stuff.
2: And I, I even disagree with mandatory minimums. I'm I'm good with mandatory max or mandatory maximums just because I believe the least gover- the least power you give to government to incarcerate people is usually the route to go. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it should be that necessary evil that we have, but we realize that we don't want to give it too much power.
1: So it's fascinating. You kind of like dove into this area when you got out of prison. do you kind of pursue some oh, of this work?
2: Yeah. When I when I got out of prison, uh, here's how it went. I was in a work release program. I came to my counselor at the work release center, and I was like, "Hey, can I talk to you?" And he's like, "Yeah, what's up?" I said, "I have two goals." He's like, "Let's hear it."
1: Most people have zero goals, so good for you.
2: My first goal: do whatever it takes to make you happy. He said, "I like your first goal. Your first goal is good. You're on the right track here." Yeah, I said, "My second goal is I want to be an engineer," and he's like, "Uh." Okay, <laughs> and I'm like so. What I want- do you want me to do? Yeah, and he's like. <laughs> I'm like so. I want call. Co- I want to take some college courses. And he's like, no, no, no. This is a work release center. He said it says in the book that I can take college courses, and he's like, tell you what, <laughs> get a job, bring home a paycheck, forty hours a week for two three weeks, then come talk to me about college courses. We can work something out. So I went and I got a job, and I got hired on as a dishwasher at. at This place called Goldie's Pizza. And I ended up starting to work at another location he had called Kenny's West Side in Peoria, Illinois. And I came to him and I said, hey, I got a deal for you. He's like, what's that? My boss was like, what's up? And I said, I want to go to college. He's like, I fully support you going to college. I'm all about it. And I said, well, if you let me manage my hours around college classes, you'd be my number two. He's like... What kind of deal is that? I'm like, no, 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 no. If college comes first, you come second, and I'll come third. And what I mean by that is I won't be going on dates. I won't be going home for the weekend to see my family. It'll be college, and the only time that your business will get vetoed is if it's college. Other than that, you'll have every waking second of my day. He said, deal. Nice. Within six weeks, I was the manager of the location. Within seven weeks, I had the checkbook. Within six months, I was the operations manager across this entire corporation. How many stores did he have? Huh? Three. Nice. So uh, so anyways, so I and, get and it. He didn't care that you're an ex-con running the books? Huh? He didn't care that you're formerly incarcerated? It's a whole nother story on his head, but the business was going underneath water at the time, and I was able to turn it around and make it successful. He had his main location going. I got his... Like his satellite locations going, so he's a genius. He just didn't have the time to give the places the effort that they needed. See the operations manager he needed. Yep. So, so I go back to the counselor, and I've <laughs> now brought a month's worth of checks in, sixty to seventy hours a week, and I said, "You said bring two, two, three weeks of checks. I've brought in four. You said do forty hours a week. I've done seventy. I want to go to school." He's like. You're working 70 hours a week. Do you really think you could handle go to school? I said, yes. (laughs) And and he said... Yes, I do. He said, all right, you can go to one class. I'm like, whoa, 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 (laughs) whoa, whoa. That's not fair. He's like, what do you mean? I said, some classes are five credits, some classes are two credits. If I get there and this five-credit class conflicts with my work schedule... And this two-credit class works. You're saying, I can't take two two-credits, but I could take one five-credit? He's like... He doesn't know the difference. Just don't do anything <laughs> stupid, Jason. He said, you got an hour. Go out to the community college. I get on my bike. I get, you know, I use my bike and the bus to get there. I get to community college. <laughs> full-time engineering courses. <laughs> labs, everything. But Ask for pr- forgiveness later. But in prison... I'd studied physics. I'd yeah. studied chemistry. I, I did the best I could to prepare myself so for So when you look this. at this
1: intro physics class, it's like, oh, you know this.
2: Yeah. So for, but but I, did, I couldn't clap out of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I had no way of proving that, you know. Yeah. So anyways, and I'd never done labs. Yeah. Never. That'd be cool. I could explain chemistry to people, but I'd never even, you know what I mean? Like you could say, okay, go hand me a, you know, a, a basic thing. And I'd be like, <laughs> what the hell? Go yeah. hand me a burrit. Yeah
1: what's a bird? Yeah. you know what i mean but, it's but like, you can tell what a covalent bond
2: is yeah i can tell them how a covalent bond is different than an ionic bond and the amount of kilojoules you got to put in it to break it like, <laughs> you don't know uh, where the pyrex in the lab is yeah like, <laughs> so uh so long story short for 17 months i rode a bike all around peoria and i literally worked 70 hours a week while going to school full-time for engineering and held a 4.0 gpa and got two businesses successful
1: so it's probably not a surprise that you're at Stanford.
2: Yep. So And I put in the transfer to Stanford. And when I got out, uh, this candidate, his name was Cash Jackson. He was running for governor in Illinois on a libertarian ticket. Uh, and he said, look, don't worry about your politics. He said, can we agree on the things that we need to reform criminal justice? And I said, yes. He said, can we agree that cannabis prohibition is bad? I said, Yes. Can can we agree on these other three principles? And I said yes. He said, Then can you just help me make those principles work? Don't nice. think of it as Democrat, Republican, or Libertarian. He's like Just focus the issue. Could you do this? Yeah. And I said, Yeah. He's like, I need you. I need you to be my director of operations. I need you. So I became his director of operations and I took a no name candidate with next to nothing funding with Brian Lambrick, I gotta give him credit, and Donnie Henry. Uh, We were able to get a no-name candidate with little money onto the first televised debate in the Libertarian Party history in the state of Illinois for the governor's race. I overseen the petitioning campaign to get him on the state board of elections ballot. Uh, I helped. I was the number one petitioner, raising over 1,600 signatures myself, and we had a grand total of 47,690 signatures and secured ballot access for him in the state of Illinois. You're just killing it, whatever you touch. Well, uh, and one thing is that while I was doing all that, there was a sheriff's race going on in in Peoria County, and I was affiliated with the governor candidate, and so I met Brian Asbell, who was the sheriff candidate in Peoria, and I also met Brian Fangle, who was the leader of the Illinois Police Chiefs Association, who was running for sheriff, and they came and spoke at a thing that, that I was also speaking at. We got to know each other. And they said, you know what? You make a lot of sense when you talk. And we started talking about, like, things that I'm trying to do and how I'm trying to change things. And I had a little bit of a falling in Peoria due to my story and what I'd done. And next thing I knew is I had both these guys bucking to try and get my endorsement. Both of them wanted me to endorse their campaign, you know. And I was just like, this is just— How did that make you feel? Yeah. Well, Brian Fangle, the Democrat, even said, hey, Jason— come down here. I want to show you something. He introduced me to U.S. Rep Sherry Bustos. It was like, Bustos, this is the guy that I, I really need his endorsement. Like, <laughs> So like I got, you know, pe- people trying to get me to endorse their campaign and introducing me to U.S. reps. And like, it's just so strange. And then that's a big twist of fate from uh, yeah, walking in the chow yeah. line. And, and, and so long story short is Brian Fangle called me up one day. and was like, Hey, have you ever thought about putting in for a pardon? And I'm like, Dude, they're not going to give me a pardon. Like, I, you know, I am I just got off parole. And he's like, well, if you ever think about it, I want you to call me because I'd like to help you with it. And I was like, and this is after the whole endorsement thing. I didn't endorse him. I endorsed, you know, we endorsed the other guy. So so I got to give him kudos to that. Like, you know, he was he was sincere about it. And then uh, the other one, the sheriff, was like, well, no, that makes sense to me. You deserve a pardon. He said... I'm, I'd like to write you a letter if you're okay with that. And he wrote me a letter. Nice. So I got a letter on the letterhead from the Peoria County Sheriff, a letter on letterhead from the chief of the Illinois Police Association, who's a Democrat. Then, during my public speaking, I ran into state reps like Alan Skillcorn, and he, and he came up to me and said, you know, you're making a lot of sense. And he said, you know, you should get a pardon. And I'm like, funny, because I got a lot of people to <laughs> me about this. And I'm like... And he wrote me a letter on his letterhead, and so after that, I was just like, you know, I'm not gonna let all these people just bring this up and not act on it. Yeah, they to all mean? these pieces
1: of paper, maybe I should do something with it. Yeah. That.
2: So, but at that time, I got into Stanford. You know, now I got a, a potential pardon pending. And... Stanford
1: didn't care about the criminal history.
2: No, actually, uh, one of the things that I'm proud about is I got. I applied to Harvard, Columbia, you know, University... High or, hopes. Nor, you know, Northwestern. Well, the way I looked at it is you got to diversify yourself. Make them tell you no. Yeah. Don't assume it. Make them tell you no. So I applied to like 16 universities. I got waitlisted at Stanford, and I got into the University of Illinois with an asterisk that I had to go on academic probation because I'd sold cannabis. So like... Stanford, when they found that out, that we hope that you come to Stanford where you will be given every opportunity that you should have had from the beginning. And so, like, not only did they get over my criminal past, but they seen it as people deserve to be judged for who they are and not always held in the shade of a mistake that they made. You That's know? pretty big. And he stands by it. He It's not something he told me in private, this and that. Dean Shaw stands by it. And he said Stanford stands behind you, so I'm not nice. happy with. You it. found the right place.
1: Yes, I did. So what's it like? Hey, there? Their,
2: their their slogan here is "Where the wind of freedom blows." So, yeah. <laughs> so you, did you find your tribe then? Yes, I have found my tribe. I, I I love it here. I I realize that I've been given an opportunity that many people who haven't committed a mistake uh, don't get, and I don't take that for granted. I make the most of my opportunities. And I realize, let me tell you this, 3,000 people applied to transfer, 24 got in. Wow, no kidding? Yeah, and I know for a fact that I'm not, there was 500 that were probably every bit as qualified. And I know for a fact that I am not any smarter, any better, any of intrinsically higher worth than they are. Once you get down to that last 500 or so, you know, don't hold me to that number. I'm just giving a figure. It's just a lottery pick if they've seen something in, in your essay. Yeah. And so I'm grateful every day that I won a lottery. My hard work made that lottery possible. But I realized that I did not get here solely on my own self Just something resonated evil. with the
1: admissions officer and boom. Yep. But you can't win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket.
2: Exactly. You, you, you can't write an essay about how you like chemistry unless you've studied it. So that's a pretty good impact. So what are you doing now? What's, what's next for you? Well, I'm currently taking classes on computer science and management science and engineering. I'm... Oh, yeah. What are you uh, majoring in here at Stanford? Okay, I haven't technically declared my undergrad major because actually when you get here, Stanford tells you. You didn't get admitted to the College of Engineering or the College of History. You got admitted to Stanford. You can take whatever major you want. They don't restrict you. And then they encourage you to take a class that you wouldn't ever think of taking before it. And I took a CS class, and it just wowed me. Like, I'm not naturally inclined for it, but I see the power behind it. So I'm wrestling right now with, do I get an undergrad in Management Science and Engineering? Or do I get an undergrad in Computer Science and then get a Master's Degree in uh, Management Science and Engineering? Because I'm in a fortunate position where Stanford has a co-term where you can get a master's degree at the same time as your bachelor's degree. Interesting. And my scholarship covers up to my bachelor's degree, so that would cover half of my master's degree. So I could walk out here with a master's for an extra six months and probably, you know, having to pay for $25,000.
1: Yeah, so given your history, it sounds like you probably didn't come from a family with money. So yeah, no, And it right. also sounds like you have a scholarship here, so how much is that paying?
2: Uh, I have a scholarship. Stanford has a Needs Blind Admissions. Uh, when you apply, if you get in, you're in. There is none of this, oh, you're broken, you can't make it. If your family made underneath $130,000, the taxable year before it, you pay zero in no tuition. No Underneath $130,000, you pay zero. Wow. Underneath $65,000, you pay... Uh, five thousand dollars is the cap for all of your expenses so for everything housing food housing food health insurance entertainment transportation everything they will give you up to a twenty five hundred dollars uh, like loan thing to get a computer little stipends for a couple of things yes if you made only sixty five thousand were you in that group yes. 'Cause the year before I was in the work lease program and I was only making eight twenty five an hour, washing dishes at first. Even though we were working seventy hours a week. Well when and then when I started working the seventy hours a week I still kept the low pay. And yeah. people were like, Why are you working this hard? I said, You don't get it, it's the opportunities. I have a job right now that is flexible enough that I can go to school and we sold pizza there so I was eating for free as well. <laughs> But another thing is I said, and I'm also getting the experience. I get the claim that I was an operations manager. When you put on your resume that you were an operations manager, they never go, yeah, but you were making minimum wage. No, that's not on your resume. Yeah. Yeah. they, They see, and then the director of field operations for Cash Jackson. Guess how much I made doing that? Zero. But I also overseen a statewide thing with volunteers. I was the number one petitioner. I helped put together... You know, with Crystal Walker and Brian Lambrick and Donnie Henry, we put together, you know, 47,000 signatures. You know, it's getting things done, and I learned experience through it that has benefited me in so many ways. You, I tell people all the time don't get so busy with dollars that you forget to make sense. <laughs> I like it. You know what I mean? Fascinating. So, what's next for you? Finish a uh, degree here? And I'm then... going to finish a degree here. I'm a natural businessman, so I'll probably end up in business somewhere uh high finance is just not my forte like you know i'm more of a get on the ground we're not get gonna find things. you on
1: wall street selling derivatives
2: yeah you know i mean who knows maybe if i get a pardon i don't know maybe i'll run for illinois governor because i already got my prison sentence out the way so <laughs> 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 who knows don't pick up another one yeah you know, well, the reason I say that is because in Illinois, we're known for our governors going to prison. Yeah. So I look at that as that's kind of like a prerequisite. Baltimore, so, too. <laughs> but I can be like, well, I already got that one done. Yeah. So now we can go on to the next I'm one. Qual- I'm, cl-
1: I'm clearly qualified. <laughs> I'm clearly qualified. You know. Well, fascinating, Jason.
2: I do have 15 years administrative experience in Illinois government. <laughs> <laughs> that's on the resume? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Fascinating story. Yeah. So... But one of the things that I often like to tell people is just don't limit yourself. Make other people tell you no. And please listen to me. If you're a felon, I get it. If you did a crime like a rape or a murder or a sex molestion case, you don't want to go around telling people about that. But if you robbed somebody and made a mistake and decided you're not going to rob anybody again, if you, you know, got caught with drugs or did a DUI... Or did another DUI. It's going to sound strange. Tell people you went to prison. And people are like, what? No, I don't want that to be known. Tell people you went to prison. Because everybody you know looks at you and they acknowledge you for the human being you are. And they accept you. And they don't know that you went to prison. So when people are talking about that, they think it's this us versus them. These people they've never met. And then when people are talking to me and they find out I did 15 years in prison, they're like, you you, you seem absolutely normal to me. I'm like, you mean I seem like a person? Yeah, because 15 years is a long time for any context. But I tell people, the problem is there's so many people locked up now, it's because we're not talking about it that people don't have an idea of what a person who is incarcerated is like.
1: Yeah, until you get to prison and you see all these dudes in the day room... They're just guys. They're just guys. Guys have made you know terrible mistakes. Are there,
2: are, are there some that are dicks and you probably shouldn't hang around them and they do bad things? Yeah, but there's plenty of them down at the bus station anywhere yeah. else in life. That's Go to it... any party and there's going to be that one douchebag that you don't want to talk to. <laughs> so you can't blame the one bad guy on you know. Yeah, it's
1: funny. I think some research came out of Stanford that shows 92 percent of all Americans have done something that would land them in prison. So when we had wow. this us versus them idea in our head. It's really everyone's running around. They probably did something bad.
2: Well, in my uh, organizational management class the other day, they did a survey where they gave us a thing, and it gave us a list of 15 things of what you want out of your job. And it was like, you know, do interesting things, do a stable check, do this and that. And people rated their 1, two, 3, and we put it on the board and took a vote. Then they said, okay, now that same list, imagine you're a blue-collar worker, Rate what you would want if you were a blue-collar worker or a retail clerk. What would you want out of your job? Oh,
1: interesting. And we went
2: down this list, and then people rated what they thought the blue-collar worker would want for their one, two, three. These other people. Which was so different. It was like, you know, job stability and stuff like this. And, uh, and the teacher pointed out, she's like, would it shock you if I told you that the top three that you picked for yourself is within the top five of what... Most people want that are white collar, and the top five of what most people want that are blue collar, and the top five that most people want that are living in poverty. And her point was is that we get these impressions that we're so different, but in the end of the day, we're all just humans, and we all basically have the same human needs. And then we form these tribal mechanisms that make us think that we desire something different and they desire this and we desire that and they desire something different. And at the end her, of the baby. day Yeah and at the end of the day, we all just want a roof over our heads and something to eat. And something that's gonna give us purpose. You know?
1: Sounds like you got the purpose. Yep, I'm I'm trying. Jason so. Spires from the Stanford computer lab. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it. This was awesome. We'll check in later.
2: uh, Feel free to look me up on Facebook. I have a page called three zero years for cannabis. It's 30 years for cannabis, but it's the numbers three zero. There's videos on there. I just gave a presentation at Stanford on why we need to pardon all nonviolent cannabis offenders if we're going to legalize it. And it got nominated for a Lunsford award. So the video presentation is up there. And I also got other videos of presentations i would given over the years. Uh, And other than that, feel free to reach out to me if you have anything of pertinent need or if you just would like my advice. Uh, My name is Jason Spires. That's J-A-S-O-N-S-P-Y-R-E-S. And you can find me at jasonspires at gmail.com.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Jason. All right. Once again.